Welcome to the Data Rockstars Coffee Pod with me, Kelly Peters. And me, Regina Lally. We're back for our 43rd episode, and today we're going to be talking about white hat hacking and the census that's taking place this week. Kelly, do you want to uh, kick off with following on from our, our discussions last week about nefarious hackers who are malicious and after data for their own evil purposes? Would you like to give us a little bit of an insight into what white hat hacking is? Absolutely. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, for sure. So I read an article recently. So white hat hackers are what are referred to as ethical hackers. So their intention is to help organisations find bugs and vulnerabilities. And they are very popular. A lot of chief information security officers will recruit white hat hackers, especially if they're a large company, because they know what to search for when it comes to vulnerabilities and if they can actually access internal systems. So what has been interesting about Endis and why I wanted to talk about it today is in the last 12 months, there have been double the number of vulnerabilities and bugs found by white hat hackers because of the significant digitization that happened last year, white hat hackers are finding more bugs. And some of them are making a significant amount of money from this, which I found really interesting because some people, and there is an argument for both, some are, why are you getting paid for this? If you're genuinely an ethical hacker, why are you not doing it for the betterment of the organization and the world? Or, you know, conversely, why are you not getting paid for something? If you're finding a vulnerability and saving a company potentially millions of pounds why shouldn't you get paid for that and what the article that was on the bbc was saying that there are companies that are ethical hackers there's one in france that has twenty-one thousand hackers there's a company in california that has a a several hundred which is not surprising because of silicon valley Mm -hmm. and all of that one hacker white hacker made a million pound from one bug that they found so (laughs) breath is like oh my god that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) it it is but i guess my question is how does it work is it based on the severity of the bug is it because are they employed and get a bonus based on what they find what's the how does that work i think it is entirely dependent on the bug that they find and the significant impact it has so i think if you think of some of the incidences that have happened in the last couple of months so if you find what is referred to as a a zero day bug so it means that there is no patch for this and there could be a lot of time to fix the patch and actually it opens you up to attack then actually that is something you're going to want to prioritize you're going to want to invest in and you're probably not wanting this the outside world of like black hackers to really know this is going on think you'll be more prepared to pay for it but you're not being held to ransom for this which is the difference i think between ethical hackers and the ones that are not the ones that are kind of the you know your evil beings have found a vulnerability and then they've published it and then they are getting other people to come in really cause you maximum amount of pain some of the bugs will be very minor that can be fixed relatively easy but if go unaddressed could become a bigger issue which is why some people get paid 140 dollars for one bug versus those that are kind of the million pounds. And I would say that depending on the industry that you're in and who your customers are, probably has some kind of impact in terms of how much money you're prepared to pay for that. So if you were solar winds and your contracts happen to be with the US defense company and an ethical hacker knocks on your doors and says, I found a bug that if you don't fix is going to cause you hundreds of millions of pounds, a million pounds as a reward for that is nothing compared to a hundred million pounds of damage. So do they, as individuals within companies, kind of randomly explore vulnerabilities of companies that they A, know are important or B, suspect could have vulnerabilities or are they commissioned by 
organizations to actually undertake a program of testing to check new developments their own security measures or is it a bit of a combination of both that they're kind of going for random you know let's see what we can find rooting around and you know oh look you know we've come up with something or and then commissioned as well by organizations to help them prepare and, and identify issues so that's a, an awesome point and from what i was reading there is a you can subscribe to a service where you can employ the services of white hat hackers and you can almost give an indication of what you're looking for what is the level of service that you're after so you can because it's risen in prominence in terms of the amount of attacks that are happening. I think security officers in organisations are more prepared to go external and see if they can find somebody that can hack their system because there's nothing better than being able to tell your customers you are genuinely secure, you regularly penetration test your network, you regularly look for vulnerabilities. So it is a marker of the type of organisation you are if you can demonstrate the level of security that you've put in place. And some may simply just be exploratory to see okay you know we think we're so good and some companies do that some companies will put out a reward that say we think we have designed an impenetrable system here's a competition here's the reward whoever can break it and because by breaking it they make it stronger so i think it depends on the type of organization you are are you do you want that regular kind of testing or do you just want a one-off because actually it's going to be a massive help in your sales pitch to customers and it's definitely rising in prominence because you know i think one said it's like they've a 38 percent increase in revenue in the last year it's we're digital now more so than ever yeah and i think you know we were talking a couple of weeks ago with jennifer actually who who came in and spoke on the podcast about the very rapid increase this time last year as we all moved to working from home in the number of phishing scams and the attempts to well the nefarious hackers to dupe people get money out of them and it you know there's they they react very quickly so i guess companies and organizations have to respond in a similar way and if they can get a head start by having those fresh pair of eyes somebody external looking at what they've created because internally you know as good as your own programmers and systems can be there's you know it's always the same when if you're reading something if you're bogged down in it you just can't see the wood for the trees and that error that would normally jump out at you you just don't see and i think that's probably part of the appeal that you get that fresh objective look and you're hopefully keeping one step ahead of the people out there who are potentially interested in exploiting where you might have missed something. And one of the things these uh, white hat hackers can do is that they can try and dupe members of staff by sending phishing emails and by seeing if they can direct them to a dodgy website that they've themselves controlled and have created. But it is it's going that extra level of testing the staff not just the technology as well and i think that's what i think is the good thing about this is because staff are your most vulnerable because when under pressure they are likely to press a link uh, without thinking about it so but hey i've spoken a lot about this and i know we still have plenty of time for you to kind of delve deep into the census for 2021 and its history because obviously this sunday we should all be uh, completing our uh, our census information so wow us with what you found uh, in your data nerd <laughs> so as Kelly said, it's 21st of March 2021 is Census Day and the census takes place every 10 years in uh, the UK and has done since 1801. So yeah, we just thought it'd be really interesting to have a little look in it because it's 
data related obviously and it's looking at trying to establish a position for the the country of you know numbers of people population insights households and it's fascinating for just how long censuses have been in place so i had a little look on the office of national statistics website and there's some really interesting info there and they mentioned that you know going back to the babylonians in 4000 bc they can in the british museum there's some clay tablets which is how they recorded their population and um they oh, used really? it. Yeah, no, we might have to do a trip. We we, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, that, that distracted <laughs> you, but I'm then going to have to go to the British Museum because I was like, wow. Sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Yeah, so they used it very much for planning food and resources. And I think that's then what's continued through. You can see it with the Egyptians in 2500 BC. They used it to plan their workforce for building the pyramids and how they would allocate land after the annual flooding of the Nile when it receded, you know, who was going to be plotting and farming what land. So again, it's just really interesting that actually the purpose of the census hasn't necessarily moved away that far. You know, nowadays we're using it for the government locally and centrally to understand population levels, movement, so that they can effectively plan health uh, provisions, so they can plan transport and, you know, housing, all of that kind of thing for to support us in, in daily life. And that's why we have it now. So it, it kind of the purpose of a census hasn't really moved away from what it originally started with. And, you know, it's much easier now than sometimes it has been in the past. So the Romans, they had a census every five years. And every man would have to go back with his family to the place that he was born to be counted. And that's obviously what you see in the, the Bible with Mary, Jesus and, and Joseph all going back to Nazareth. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting that that's obviously a massive effort for individuals. And now we can very easily complete the census on a computer. You know, we should have all received a code in the last few weeks, which means that we can log on to the census website and complete our information as, as relevant on Sunday. And looking at it more locally, we've had a census here every 10 years since 1801. And again, it, it came in because the idea of population growth was putting pressure on what we as, as the UK could provide in terms of food and resources. And there was worried about famine and other you know, health related disasters. So the people originally were quite against it, which is interesting. Interesting, that kind of idea of being counted and monitored and I think obviously the attitudes haven't changed that much in what 220 years but actually when they realised the risk of not doing it it became more accepted that actually this was going to be needed and back at that first census we had 9 million people in 1801 and wow. I think it's around 72 million so in those first 100 years the population of England and Wales grew threefold so it went from the 9 million to 32 million and then there was an extra four and a half million for Scotland who had had their own census from a later date so that's a pretty big increase but then again you can see in the next hundred years it's pretty much then doubled so it's really fascinating and then I got very excited so the premise of the census just to be really clear is that it's a count of all people and households in the country and the last one was on the 27th of March 2011 and you can access the website that gives you all the insight into what the information was so it's anonymized so it's aggregated data and it can give you breakdowns by you know splits of men and women it can give you age breakdowns all different levels so at county level it can give you a ward level so i had a little look into mine it's just really interesting like seeing number of households you know that there's 59 properties that don't have any residents in them usually they can give you a breakdown of you know sort of properties that are usually have one resident and then usually they don't give you addresses obviously because that would then be starting to identify people but it's an interesting breakdown to kind of track and see how life is changing as well it's you know probably got more 
single person household now than ever before. It gives you the nature of sort of residents and, and density of residents versus you know more rural areas, and it's really quite fascinating. And I think the what it really does give you is that insight into it's comparable data. So because you've yeah. got it as the same questions going to all people, all households across the country. It means you can compare over time. Yes, the questions change and redefined and, uh, you know, evolve over over the years. But at that one day, every 10 years, you get a common set of questions that everybody has to answer. And that makes it really easy to compare different parts of the country. And it, it gives that insight. And I think I find it really fascinating. And then obviously after 100 years, so next year in 2022, they will release the insight and like individual level data for the census that took place in 1921. I was going to say that because the reason I was going to bring that my mum's a massive history buff and he's been tracking our family history now for 15 years and we was expecting the census to come out this year because it normally comes out exactly 100 years after but obviously because of the pandemic it's taken them a little bit longer to be able to push that out and the other thing because I'm conscious that we're running out of time is that for the first time in this census individuals will be able to report confidentially their sexuality and their gender so if they are gender at birth they and they have um, different opinion of what their gender is they can report that as they see it and their sexual it has to be a legally defined gender so if they've changed it has to be i believe on their passport or uh, oh, okay. sorry no they said it could be on passport but i think actually it, they then said it has to be at birth or on the official gender change document that you okay. get but yes but at the same time with the sexual orientation one they are giving people the opportunity to request an individual code so yeah. that if that hasn't been revealed to other members of their household and they're not at the point of being ready to do that yet they still can actually have themselves as individuals reflected in the census without necessarily compromising that privacy, which is a, a really, again, interesting development and, and shows how things are shifting over time. So yeah, we have obviously in our excitement about white hat hacking and the census been carried away with time. So hopefully it won't be too difficult to bring back for our wonderful editor, Julia. Um, so thank you for listening and we hope that you have completed the census. And if you have any questions or would like us to talk about any specific stories that you spot in the news, then please contact us at coffee at dbxuk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Otherwise we will catch up with you again next week. Oh,